darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. John 2 verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, it's so great to be with you this afternoon, and thank you, Aaron, for that wonderful reading of um, the video in a very husky, dramatic way. I appreciated that. Um, it sounds beautiful. You want to come up and preach? That'll suit me really well today. Um, if you wanna come up and do this for me, that would also be great. I'm mostly kidding. <laughs> oh, friends, it is good to be gathered with you this afternoon. Thank you for choosing to spend your Sunday afternoon here. You didn't have to be here, um, but it is good that you are. Let me tell you that when you preach a sermon, sometimes you get given like a big chunk of scripture. Maybe it's a chapter, maybe it's like 10 verses, maybe it's 20. And it feels like an impossible task to accurately and well, like, eloquently um, convey all that you want to about that scripture. Then sometimes you get given three verses and it feels exactly the same way. So tonight I have three verses that we're going to unpack together in about 30 minutes, hopefully. And what I want to say right from the start is that it's a little bit complex, this idea that we're talking about tonight. But I have faith in you in us, in me. We are informed, educated Brisbaneites, and we can do this. Yes, amen. Um, but to help me do this, um, would you pray with me this afternoon? Father God, you are welcome here, both in this physical space that we inhabit, but also in the space that makes up our hearts. God, our desire is to love you, to know you, to meet with you this afternoon, but there are a billion things that disrupt and distract and tempt us to not let that be the reality. And so we need you, Holy Spirit, to rush in with your peace this afternoon. That you would detangle all of the things that we've placed value and worth on that are apart from you so that we can hear your word this afternoon and respond rightly. God, come and make your presence known, make your love known to us this afternoon, that we would become a more people more like Jesus, not just in a nice saying, but in the actuality and the reality of our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, we need you, I need you. Less of me this afternoon, more of you through me, I pray. Amen. St. Augustine, this fifth century theologian and philosopher, once said this, during this earthly pilgrimage, our life cannot be free from temptation, for none of us comes to know ourselves except through the experience of temptation. Nor can we be crowned 
until we've come through victorious. And nor can we be victorious until we've been in a battle. We can't fight our battles unless, all the way back to the start, we have an enemy and temptations to overcome. Now, before you refute this right off the bat, tell me, have you ever been in a supermarket when you're hungry? You know, you've got four out of five ingredients that you need for dinner at home, but what do you want to buy? Everything that you shouldn't, right? Have you ever gone to Ikea with the misguided idea that all you need is one thing? All the flipping time. Have you ever crossed a line from sexual temptation into sexual sin? It doesn't feel like there's much of a gap there in the moment. Have you ever bought another linen shirt just because it was on sale? Not guilty, <laughs> look at me. Have you ever overheard a colleague's presentation a few seconds before you're due to give yours? Have you ever been told not to do something that you ordinarily would have no desire to do, but the second that you're told not to do it, it becomes the all-consuming desire of your life? Tell me again that our lives can't be free from temptation. Our lives can't be free from temptation because things like supermarket and Ikea and sex and assembly label and our ego and curiosity exist. A classic and maybe a little less personal or funny example of temptation happens in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Who's seen the movie, read the books? Gosh, some nods. I'm hoping that you guys who didn't move have seen it because this will be unfortunate if you haven't. Um, in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the White Witch, who is the villain of the story, she's the one who's responsible for it always being winter and never being Christmas. <laughs> Guys, come on. In this magical land called Narnia. Anyway, this villain of the story tempts Edmund, who's one of four siblings who would become the saviors of this land called Narnia. He, she tempts him to give up his other four siblings so that she could kill them. If you haven't seen it, don't hate me. Of course, now, she didn't tell Edmund that whole plan to begin with. She seduces him by satisfying his appetite with Turkish delight, which sounds like a great time to me. She then flatters him with this notion that he could be king. And then she puffs him up in pride, thinking that he would be king over his other siblings. He's used to being kind of the one that's pushed aside, and she says, no, no, you can be the one who rules over them all. Eventually, he does see through her intentions, and the story does end happily, but it doesn't happen after he was deceived, after he was tempted, and it also came at great cost both to himself and to those around him. Now, in our text tonight, the villain is not a mythical white witch. The battle is not for the four thrones of Caer Paravel. It's for something far more familiar to both St. Augustine and to us. John's enemy and the source of our temptation is what he calls the world. And the battle that we find ourselves in the midst of is for the throne of our hearts, for who we love the most. And what you might have noticed as we've been spending the last few weeks in this epistle of 1 John is that John uses the word love a heck of a lot. Fun fact, I shared this with the team earlier, over 50 times throughout John's gospel and throughout these three little epistles, he uses the word love. But what's interesting in our text tonight is this is the only time that he uses it in the negative. 
Every other time he's unpacking, what does it mean to love? This is what love feels like. This is how God demonstrates his love. This is what love is. Tonight, what he says to us is this is what you shouldn't love. Do not love this. And I'm not a mathematician, but I think sometimes when you're looking at statistics, if you have an outlier or an anomaly, you kind of put that to the side and you pretend it doesn't exist. Um, You don't want to disrupt your data or whatever hypothesis you're trying to like make. Um, We're not going to do that tonight. That would be a giant misstep. If what we saw in this one negative use, it's not up there, I'm not sure why I'm pointing. It would be a giant misstep for us if this one negative use of the word love, if we just pushed that aside and wrote it off. Because what we know about John right from the start is that he is someone who has seen and heard and touched and been with Jesus and that his testimony can be trusted, right? So we need to take this one use, not off to the side, but as critical to understanding the full message that he's trying to say. So come with me tonight as we do that. If you need to get out your Bible, do that. If you wanna take notes, do that. If it's just a main point that you wanna write down so that when your small group leader asks you during the week what you learned at church, you have something to say. Whatever that looks like for you tonight, teachers in the room will agree with me when I say that. The best way that we learn is when we're actively engaged with something. So do that. Let's read it together. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So let's start with the first verse. Seems like a good place to start. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And I wonder, friends, is there already an objection swirling around in your head? What do you mean, don't love the world? I love my wife. I love my assembly label linen shirt. I love grapes. I don't know. Whatever it is for you, insert your objection there. But before we do this ruthless elimination of hurry and give away all of our stuff, delete our social media, go live in a cave, only have two rotating outfits, before we jump into the one extreme, let's not deny ourselves a process. Let's find out what John actually means when he says, do not love the world. Because I'm sure there's also a very famous Bible verse that's circling around your head right now that maybe says something about, for God to love the world. We'll get there, promise. But for now, how does Jesus use the word world? In Mark 8, he says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? In John 15, he says, if the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, but as it is, you don't belong to the world because I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Then a couple of um, scenes later in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of his disciples and he says to God, my prayer is not that you take them, the disciples, out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you've sent me into the world, I have sent them also. So the world, according to Jesus, is a temptation to avoid, an enemy to be on our guard against, and it's also the mission field by which he sent us into. Lots of different things at play. So next, let's look at how the writers of the New Testament develop all of this stuff that Jesus has said. 
Paul in Romans 12, famous verse, he says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In 1 John, like we just read, John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And here it is, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but to save the world through him. So here we add three more things. The world according to the writers of the New Testament can be a temptation to not conform to. It can be the opponent of our love for God but it's also something that God has deep love and affection for to the point that it cost him. He gave up his son in order to save it, to redeem it, to ransom it. So broadly, if we put those two things together because intentionally I made them to be overlapping, we have one, the world used as a worldview or a system by which we can be tempted. Two, it's like a big picture bad guy. The world can be an enemy that hates those who love God. And the third way that the world is used is to describe something that is beautiful and precious and dearly loved by God and in need of redemption. So let's zoom in a little bit further now to come up with a bit of a definition. And it's probably worth me saying that if this sounds all a bit complicated, think about it like this. Our English language uses the exact same word in either pronunciation or spelling in multiple different ways. Case in point, there. Which one did I use? You will never know. But what helps us tell the difference? And just in case you think you can come up here and have a look, I wrote them all out, so you will also never know. How can you tell the difference? Sometimes it's spelling, not in this case. Other times it can be context, or it can be the nuance of how the word is used. In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer gives this great example of our English word for ball. Ball can mean quite a few different things. It can be a sports ball, like a basketball or a cricket ball or a soccer ball or a footy ball, netball, big ball, small ball. I'll stop. <laughs> oh man. It can also be something that you get dressed up really fancy for and go to a dancing ball. True. You could also go home this afternoon and say to your housemate or significant other who wasn't here or someone on the street that you had a ball at church tonight. A ball can also mean a great time. And it's the same way with the Greek word cosmos, which we translate translate out to mean world. It has many different meanings. And we can't look at spelling to help us with either ball or with cosmos, they're the same, but we can look at the context and at the nuance to help us understand. So on the screen are three main uses of the word cosmos in the New Testament. The first one is creation, and an example of this would be in Romans 1, where Paul says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen so that men are without excuse. So it can mean the natural world, this thing that's beautiful and been created by God and just is the place that we occupy. The second way is humanity. John 3.16 is a great example for this. For God so loved the world, humanity, 
We can interchange those words there. And then the third way is what a commentator that I was reading defines as an organized system of human civilization and activity, which is opposed to God and alienated from him. Now that's a mouthful. Do not try and memorize that one. The first two are easy. But if you're wanting an example of this, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. I actually preached a sermon on it at the start of last year in our Genesis series. So if you want to do more research into that, if you need an example, if you're like, no, that doesn't sound right, go have a read. Go have a read. And definition C, or three, as it is on your screen, is primarily what John is talking about when he warns us to not love the world or anything in the world. Why? Because as we can see in this definition, this understanding of the world is opposed to God. It's separate. That's what alienated means, separate from him. Eugene Peterson, in his um, paraphrase of this passage, says that love for the Father squeezes out other way around. Love for the world squeezes out love for the Father. And that's why we, we have to wrestle with this reality that if anyone loves the world, love for the Father can't be in there because there's actually no more room. The world and God are mutually exclusive objects of our love. You can love God or you can love the world, but you can't love both. Now, even for those of us in this room tonight who do want to love God, that's the genuine desire of your heart. That's probably why you're here tonight, why you're participating in Christian community. This idea that you can't love the world and love God presents a little bit of a problem for us because this world happens to be the place where you and I exist. Don't know if you knew that or not. It's also a problem because this world, this system of human development and activity opposed to God and separate from Him, that's how our worldview is formed. By default, this world that we live in, this system that we're part of, is the lens by which we view things like sexuality, money, how we spend money, how we make money, how we dress, who we want to impress, what a good life looks like. By default, the world is our lens by which we, we view all of these things and we make up our decisions. You know, like sometimes I'm like, oh, no, the Bible is where I get my worldview from until I come up with something that like the Bible doesn't really say the right thing for or it's competing with my view of what I want to be okay. And we have a choice in that moment. We bring our worldview to the Bible and we get to wrestle with that. And ultimately at the end of the day, we say either God, you're God, infinitely greater than I am, full of wisdom, made revelatory through your word, or we say, hmm, I'm smarter than you are. I'm more cultured. I'm more kind. I'm more compassionate. I'm going to take my understanding of this and run with that instead. We've got to stop doing this, or at least be honest when we are doing it. Because as followers of Christ, as those becoming more like him, we're called not to conform to the world, to the patterns of this world but to courageously defy the default of this world and to live and think and spend and do relationship differently. 
Again, Peterson, he's just brilliant wordsmith. He paraphrases Romans 12 too like this. He says, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. But he doesn't just leave it there. He says, instead, instead, fix your attention on God. Make him the biggest thing in your perspective and you will be changed from the inside out. The next thing we tackle, verse 16, is what does the world What does love for the world look like? How can we know whether we're caught up in it or not? Well, John gives us three examples. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. You've probably heard it said somewhere along the line that there is nothing new under the sun, and it's true. The reason that we can't love God and love the world The way that the world squeezes out our love for the Father is through these same three disordered desires. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These seem like kind of weird things to say, so let me give you some definitions. John Mark Comer, talking about the lust of the flesh, he shoots really straight. He says, clearly he, John, had in mind sexual temptation. Sexual temptation is the epitome of love deformed. Where an image bearer we were made to give sacrificial love to becomes an object of desire we take pleasure from, even if it's consensual. But this includes more than just sexual desire. It's any desire of our flesh for food, for drink, for instant gratification, for control, for dominion over others, and so on down the list. The second thing let's define is the lust of the eyes. Jesus said that the eyes are the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And unfortunately for us, the opposite is also true. When we are unhealthy, our eyes become this marketplace where our flesh meets the world and where greed and envy, jealousy, discontentment, endless consumerism, crushing comparison, everything else evil that you can probably think of offers themselves up for our consumption. Ask anyone in digital marketing or psychology. It's true. Finally, the third thing, the pride of life. John Mark Comer again, he's just so brilliant. He says, the pride of life is the human bent in all of us to go our own way, to rebel against authority and think we know better than our forebearers. I'd add that it's the desire in us to be like God, to be the ultimate authority in our own lives. The pride of life means we know little about humility and much about keeping face. We want to impress others, to one-up them, to make sure that we receive credit and never blame. To dominate conversations with points that exalt ourselves. Guys, I do this all the time. If I'm honest, I do this all the time. And this way of life is typical to the world, but it's antithetical to the Christian life. An interesting thing here is that these first two, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, play on what we don't have. They play on our desire for more, for gain. And the second, oh, the third, sorry, the pride of life plays on our desire for what we do have, to try and keep it, to manage it, to not lose it. Both our longings, or let's use belongings because it's poetic and it fits well, Our longings or our belongings steal our attention and our affection from us loving God most. 
when we are so consumed by what we don't have or by what we do, we have little brain space left to love God first and best and most. Now, there's a solid argument to be made here that the world we live in, our cultural moment, makes it extremely difficult to love God most. There is so much competing for our time and our affection, our attention and our love. Is it just me or does like monasticism become really appealing right about now? Run away, just be with Christians, sing Kumbaya. Jesus sent us into the world, not take us out of it. Yeah. All of that, it's still there. But before we entertain that temptation to just ditch it all, stuff it all, let's just start again. Before we get there, before we think that it was better in the good old days, let me take you back to a place called Genesis in a garden called Eden. Even here in perfection, back when humanity walked shoulder to shoulder in the cool of the day with God himself, even there, there's something in us that still chose to concede to temptation rather than to trust God's character and to love him with our obedience. You can read most of Genesis 3 and it'll give you more information, but just for time's sake, Genesis 3, 6. Actually, and as we do this, it's underlined, it's like, what is it called? Like a slam dunk for you. You can see it. But see if this sets off anything else in your memory from what we have talked about so far. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, it was also pleasing to the eye and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some, she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Friends, what do we have here? We have the lust of the flesh, food. We have the lust of the eyes. It was pleasing to her eyes. And we have the pride of life. This fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. Desiring and gaining wisdom meant that they would be like God. These are the same three temptations that John is writing about. And you know what the crazy thing is here? All Eve had to do when she was asked by Satan, did God really say this? Was yes. Yes, he did. Temptation can't force our hand. We always have a choice in how we respond. And if you're not sold on that, just because I've said it, let me show you Jesus, who, as the writer of Hebrews says, is able to empathize us with us in our weakness because he's been tempted in every way just as we have, yet he did not sin. Matthew 4, same thing. It's underlined in yellow, in bold for you, on a platter. These are a few verses that I've just kind of stuck together to make it shorter. The tempter, the, the devil, came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then the third one, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Do you see the pattern? The lust of the flesh, turn these stones to bread. The lust of the eyes, look at all of these kingdoms. Look at them in their splendor and majesty. They could be yours. And the pride of life, 
oh, just throw yourself off this building. Make a spectacle of yourself. Then people will know that you're God. Jesus was presented with the exact same temptations that we are, that Adam and Eve were. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But what he models for us is that the way to refute temptation in our lives is not to fight back. It's not to eliminate absolutely anything that could cause us to stumble, could cause us to be led astray. It's not to reject the world because God loved the world and he died for it. But the way to stand firm against temptation is to know and trust in the character of God, to trust in the truth of his word, to be able to say when someone comes or something comes and tempts you to deny him, to be able to say, yes, God did say that. Yes, that is who my God is. Or no, that's not who my God is. You know, it works either way. The way that we love God most is by our obedience in the moment when obedience to God seems like the hardest thing in the world. The moment of hope comes for us in verse 17. It's a weird one, but it's hopeful. It says the world and its desires pass away. This is kind of helpful. It's also kind of terrifying because it means that everything we are striving and seeking to gain and to be and to attain, it's gonna pass away, it's gonna vanish. The writer of Ecclesiastes talking about denying himself nothing that his eyes could see and at the end of the day, it was like chasing the wind. You can't grasp it, you can't keep it, you can't have it, it never satisfies. The cool thing that happens at the end of um, Matthew 4, verse 11, actually, is that it just says the devil left Jesus. Friends, temptation passes. Desires pass. They never satisfy. They will never last. But they always pass. And to circle all the way back around to St. Augustine, who said that our life can't be free from temptation because it's the way we come to know ourselves and the way that we experience victory. It's kind of true. Kind of sucks that it's true, but it's true. And John's antidote to this is that whoever does the will of God is the one that lasts forever. Let's learn this here. I read in a book recently that someone said um, our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. And like most things that I read in books, like they sound really smart, but I don't really understand what it means. So I have to sit with it or read it a few times over until it clicks. And eventually it did and I was like, whoa. Our strongest desires are not always our deepest desires. Again, think back to being in the supermarket when you're hungry and you've got a really boring dinner at home. Deepest desire is probably that you want to save money or that you're trying to be healthy or that you know, you've got six other people waiting at home who are also going to eat with you. But in that moment, your strongest desire is for the junk. Maybe your deepest desire is to be able to stand at your wedding altar and say to your partner that you have been faithful in singleness and you will be celibate. 
all the way around. You've been celibate in your singleness and you are ready to be faithful in your marriage. But your strongest desire in that moment of temptation when it's late at night, you're tired, you just wanna feel something pleasurable. Our strongest desires are not always our deepest ones. I can't tell you what yours are. That's just something between you and God. But it's worth naming them. It's worth getting alone with him and naming these things. Because to be able to overcome them, we actually have to be able to name them and look them in the eye and say, you actually don't hold any power. I love God most. I love God more than I love the world. I love God more than I love this temporary satisfaction, this instant gratification, this desire to be recognized or needed or loved by anyone other than him. And at the end of the day, what do we do if we don't really feel love for God? Because I don't think I'm alone. When you say, morning as I was preparing for this, I was sitting at my table and reading this book and it just said like, take a moment and ask God what he thinks of you. And I was like, heck no, I'm not doing that. I don't think he thinks very much of me at all. I don't think I'm the only one who finds it hard to understand how God could love me. That this God who desires to be loved and loved by me would actually love me. And the way to get more love for God, I've found, is not to do more things for him. It's not to be better at hiding all of your sin and coming to church on a Sunday and pretending you've got it all together. That doesn't stir up my affection. The way that I'm learning to have more love for God is to be overwhelmed by his love for me. The kind of love that John 3.16 is true of me about. For God so loved me that he gave his one and only son. That if I choose to believe in him, I'll not perish but have eternal life. And so friends, if you really love God today, that's awesome. Keep loving him. Keep making him your first and your most important and your best thing. The world can only throw punches. You can't take that away. And if you don't feel much love or affection towards God tonight, you don't have to try harder. You don't have to be better. You don't have to fake it. Your invitation this afternoon is to throw yourself at him. Just to fall at his feet in a total heap. To let him overwhelm you with the reality of his love for you. 1 John 4.10, which is like one of my favorite verses, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. It says, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and He gave His Son as an atoning sacrifice to take away our sins. Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us. Friend, He loves you. God 
loves you. God loves you. Yes, you. Our strongest desires aren't always our deepest. But he's with us in those passing moments, beckoning us and calling us deeper. As we respond in worship tonight, the team's gonna lead us in a song which um, is old and, and somewhat lame, but so beautiful. I, I requested it, it's not on them. Um, I asked them to sing it. I just feel like we need to make a moment tonight that if you need to receive God's love afresh, if you, like me, sat at your kitchen table yesterday just weeping with unbelief that God could love you, then I'm gonna be like in the front row, Aaron and Candice will be here, Brent and Anna are down, Kathy's down, Katie's down. Um, come and pray, we'd love to just help you receive that. If there's a temptation that you're facing, a, a word that I didn't end up saying but um, meant to is withstand. To withstand something to me means to remain unaffected by it. In this world, we are going to face temptations. You probably are in the midst of something right now. But the way that we move through it is to withstand, to remain unaffected by it. And we do that by fixing our eyes and our attention on Jesus. And if that's something that you need to learn how to do this afternoon or need to do afresh, um, we'd love to pray for you as well. But um, yeah, anyway, would you stand with me as I, as I pray? And then um, we'll worship together. Look, God, I, I pray that firstly, if anything that I have said today has been unhelpful or untrue, that it would just fall away and people would not remember it. God, you so loved the world. You so loved us. That's why you came. And God, I pray this afternoon you would teach us that to not love the world is for the sake of the world. That to not love the things of the world is actually this monument of hope that we present to the world that says there's something better on offer than all of these ways you're trying to receive love and affirmation. God, would you well up in us this afternoon a desire and a love for you. Not that's of our own doing or our own strength, but as a response to the way we've been loved. And God, for those of us here tonight who don't know that yet, who don't know your love or who've forgotten or have grown cold, pour yourself out, Father. Make your love tangibly known in this place. God, I thank you that you delight in things of weakness and brokenness because that's when your glory and your strength is most fully on display. So let us not be too proud this afternoon, too caught up in what people think of us. 
to help us just fling ourselves at your feet to receive your mercy, to receive your grace, to receive your help in every time of temptation and trial and need. That we would know how deeply you love us and that we would get to love you in return. Would you sing with us as we continue to worship?